The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. Nord Nordman. Oh God. Have you heard Nordman? Nordman has his has his own uh his own shirt, yeah. Nordman, the silver ball protector. Yeah, I wonder if Dennis Nordman has any idea. Swear to me. Put some foam core on it. <laughs> I have a throat problem, I'm sorry. Hello everyone, I'm David Dennis, and this is Silverball Chronicles. With me this month, like every month, is Ron Godzilla Hallett. What's up, fella? Uh, roar, as I hit you with my atomic breath. There you go, Godzilla. Holy moly, you are over the moon. You got your LE order in? Uh, no. I don't buy LEs. You in on, you in on the topper? I, I haven't seen a topper. You got the shooter rod all ordered and the art blades? I really haven't seen those either. All the things that used to come with pinball machines that we'll talk about this month. Plus, this game Godzilla has a really cool mech. Ties in very well this month, doesn't it? Yes, it does! Woo! Well, I'll tell you what. I have been doing a lot of stuff. I've been very busy. I was part of episode 72 of the Pinball Show, where I covered Deep Root Pinball. And, uh... Ooh, that's a whole thing. You can go back and listen to that summary if you'd like, but we want to move on from Deep Root, and that is Godzilla Ultraman Halloween. The wheels are sort of turning in pinball again. Yes, the wheels are turning in pinball. Golly gee. That's right. They're finally, we have pinball machines, but you know what? You can't get them. They're there, but you can't get them. Aww. So, And if you can, you got to pay a fortune for them. So... That has turned me uh, a bit sour as of uh, late in the last few months. So when I'm not really sort of busy doing TPN and, and Chronicle stuff, I'm being incredibly bitter because I've been priced out of the market. And our listeners probably don't care. They don't care about you or me. They don't. They care about pinball history. And joining us on social media over at facebook.com slash silverballchronicles, where you can engage with us in our musings, swing on over and drop us a line. But also when you find us on your regular podcatcher, we've updated our RSS. We're on most of the podcatchers except for Spotify because it is hell getting on Spotify. But if you do find us anywhere, leave us a five-star review so others can find us. We also get lots of wonderful feedback, some of it from This Week in Pinball's promoter database. This Week in Pinball is a sponsor of the podcast, giving us a $2 kickback every month to give them a little plug, but swing on over to This Week in Pinball for some of your news, as well as the Pinball Promoters database, where you can leave us a quick little review. A review? Yeah, Joe left us a review. Do you want to read that for the folks? The only pinball podcast worth your time. Unlike other pinball podcasts, which devote hours to discussing a single pin side thread, Silverball Chronicles is actually interesting. Yeah, there you go. We've also got Simon H. He emailed in to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. 
He was talking about our Steve Ritchie episode, our big three-hour finale for Steve Ritchie, which I would say is quite fitting. He said that my friend forwarded me your last Steve Ritchie part three podcast. I have to say it was such a good listen. I immediately listened to parts one and two. Seven hours later, phew. Black Knight was the game in early 1981 that took this 14-year-old kid from playing video games to pinball. I used to play that game so much. I can remember when I finally cracked 3 million points. The memory still sits with me today. When Black Knight Sword of Rage came out, I had to get an LE. The only LE I have ever bought brand new, and I'm glad I did. Thanks for the great podcast, and I'll have a listen to some of your other episodes, plus... I'll check out Ron's Slam Tilt one. Ooh. There you go. There's your Slam Tilt plug. I like how you said, few. But it meant like, whew, Like that, that, that was supposed to be a sound effect there. And you got to wipe your hand over your yes. forehead. And he listened to part one of Steve Ritchie, which, by the way, was our pilot episode. Mm-hmm. Significantly more rocky than we were today. Podcast better. <laughs> it was a good episode, but there was uh, some formatting changes and stuff that we made, which were uh, all the difference. And yes, you mentioned Slam Till Podcast, which is my other podcast. So if this is far too professional for you and you want something really silly and stupid, give us a listen. And if you want to listen to somebody talk for 30 minutes about changing out a coil, that's your, that's your, that's your podcast. Or if you want to watch a Stern Army member literally tell one of the programmers to retire, then you can listen to our podcast. <laughs> it's well worth your time. Rob also emailed in. He got This one came in just before we started to record, so I made sure I included it. Rob says, I just wanted to drop a line and say that you have the best pinball podcast. Absolutely love listening to it. I thank you for doing one on Pinball 2000 platform. I was there at Expo 99, and I was in the room in the video with George talking about it and Star Wars Episode One. I also took the factory tour. Ooh, the infamous factory uh, tour. He got the last factory tour ever. And their newer location, they'd actually moved to a new, newer state-of-the-art facility. It looked really cool. They all had, like, Pinball 2000 shirts on and stuff there. Well, little did they know, like, probably two or three days after they were at that factory, that was going to be it. Well, if you wanted a t-shirt from uh, us here at Silverball Chronicles, which I'm actually wearing at this exact moment because I didn't have any other clean shirts, swing on over to silverballswag.com. That's where we have uh, hoodies, mugs, and stickers, and a bunch of other things. We sold two shirts last month. Oh, that's why the PayPal said we had money. That's right. We are in the money now. So next time you're at the Rochester Pinball Collective, you can buy yourself a bag of chips. You're welcome. (laughs) Also, we've got corrections and comments. Because this is sort of a historical-esque uh, you know, podcast, we are spending some time driving in sources from multiple locations. Often we will have comments and corrections. We'd love for you to send those in to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. Last month, I was super confused with what those dynamite things were called in the last episode, like the ones that Wiley Coyote used to use. And I called them a plunger. Bo Jimmy emailed in and he said it was called a detonator. Which does seem correct, but I did some Googling, and its actual official name is a TNT blasting machine or a shot exploder. Eh, it's a detonator. No, I'm telling you, man, plunger. <laughs> it's, it's not a plunger. You Google it, Google it in, TNT plunger, and it comes up. But then it actually goes to the real article that says TNT blasting machine. I had a correction. 
Oh, I'll, I'll say I'll save this one. This is this is a correction from Bruce Nightingale, the Slam Tilt podcast. And I don't even remember saying this. I certainly don't remember saying this in the last episode because it was the Steve Ritchie episode. But I guess I made mention that the factory where Stern was for years was like all through Data East days up to Stern Pinball. And then a few years ago, they moved to their new facility. I was told that was wrong that they were in their original factory when they were Data East, and then sometime around where they became Sega, they moved into a new factory, and that's the factory they were in all the way up to a few years ago before they moved again. There, there. I, I've made a correction. There was also a correction that Dennis Creasel let me know that you indeed said something also incorrect. You're falling apart here, bud. Thank you. He said. I, he said. He asked me if he should email it in. He should have. Yeah, you should have. Uh, you can't tell me I'm wrong and then not tell me what it is. Right, and I'm and I'm I forget things all the Maybe time. Maybe he's telling me my name isn't Ron Hallett. Somehow I screwed that up. It's possible. Uh, Ted at Pinball Prices, he also sent in some interesting bits about Pinball 2000 and video game pinball. He says, "I recently came across a Chicago Coin Super Flipper game, a video game disguised as a pinball machine, up for auction. Have you guys ever talked about it on the show?" So I did some uh, looking up on the IPDB for the Chicago Coin Super Flipper game, and it is classified uh, as a flipper, like not pinball. It says not pinball, which is why when we were kind of looking up stuff, it didn't come up on the list. Although when you look at it, it's pretty much pinball. Uh, and it's pretty neat. So if you're interested in checking that out, I would, I would go and take a look. It's really cool how we get some of this, this feedback stuff. In the last episode, I said that George Gomez was on just another pinball podcast with Joel Engelberth, where I used a couple of George Gomez quotes, and that was actually incorrect. Edward sent in an email to let me know that George Gomez spoke on the super awesome pinball shows fireside chat number one, where you got some of that information, not just another pinball podcast. And Edward also says, I agree. Joel Engelberth is the worst. Wow. All right. So should we jump into today's topic now that we've tied a bow on all of the mistakes that you made, Ron? Uh, yes. And now that your ad is probably played that you'll stick in later. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to stick that in a little bit later. Yeah, eh? If you're in Canada, Dennis Financial is for you. <laughs> the Bally Williams era has often been considered the most mechanically exciting time in pinball. In fact, many of the games in the era still carry a hefty resale price on the secondary market because they still have the magic of course, the magic of pinball and the world under glass was truly brought to life by Bally Williams in the 1990s. When pinball all but died after the closure of Williams in 1999, many media personalities, book writers, and hobbyists spent the 10 plus years following that dreaming of what could have been if the glory years continued. Many pinball personalities who purchased assets from the major manufacturer spent years trying to finish incomplete games or bring back a new Bally Williams. Of course, they all failed because Bally Williams was unique. It was an industry powerhouse where creativity, competition, and magic were created. This month, Ron, we're talking about the mechs that made us. 90s. Bally Williams. Of course, 
Everybody loves the Bally Williams games in the 90s. Even the B, C, and D level level titles are all sought after in today's market. Isn't that right? Except Gilligan's Island, probably. Uh, I mean, yes, all of them. All of them are highly sought after. Because even Gilligan's Island has a super cool mech in it. Except for, well, except for Popeye. But even Popeye has super cool mechs in it. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, Adam's Family, Fun House, uh, you know, you could check out our, our Pat Lawler episode where we talk about that. We've got Steve Ritchie's games in the 90s, which are crazy. Star Trek, you know, even even games like uh, No Fear. You could Barry Ausler, Dwight Sullivan episodes. We've got all those in our archives. You can swing on over to silverballchronicles.com and they are all listed there and you can go back and listen to them. Or you can go through the, of course, your podcatcher and find those. But Ron, the real question, the thing that drove everybody here today is what is your favorite pinball mech from the 90s? Hmm. I actually love the Supercharger. From High Speed 2? Although it's not really a complicated mech, is it? The promotional piece for it, their their promo video they did for it said, the Supercharger has no moving parts. That is completely false. It has one moving part, which is the diverter on top of it. And a, ma- and a massive magnet, although it doesn't move, it's still a big deal. That doesn't move, but the diverter does move and it does break. But I, they were trying to say it has no moving parts, meaning it'll never break. But uh, it's simple. It's just three magnets that make the ball go around a loop, but it goes around so fast. It literally moves the entire game back and forth as it as it's going around. And it's a very simple mech, and I, I, but I thought it was super cool. It's super, super fun to watch. Talk about kinetic satisfaction. Of course, I'm going to have to say my favorite mech in the 90s, although not my favorite game, is the Doctor Who Meat Slicer. And we'll talk about that right away. The Doctor Who Meat Slicer. Do you mean the Time Expander? Yeah, that's it. The Time Expander. That's it. Which, this is the tie-in to, we mentioned Godzilla earlier, because there was a moving building on Godzilla. And the first thing people were saying is, hey, look, it's Doctor Who. But much cooler. So this is uh, Doctor Who, of course. We're talking September of 1992. It's sci-fi time travel theme. This is a Williams WPC Fliptronics 2 system. Sells 7,752 units. This has art by Linda Deal. It has music and sound by John Hay and software by Bill Futzenruder. So, uh, of course, Futzenruder, or as they called him, Futz, wanted to do a game and designed a play field. But, of course, he couldn't get it moving. So he just basically gave it to Barry Ausler. And this seems to be the theme at Williams, which was, I got these ideas and I need somebody to finish it. Let's give it to Barry and Barry will make a killer game out of it. So then it was considered a joint design between Bill Futzenruder and Barry Ausler, who worked very closely together on all the ideas, including the idea of the meat slicer. I'm sorry, time expander. So what's Doctor Who? Are you a Doctor Who fan? You seem like a Doctor Who nerd. Wow. That is one of the um, requirements of nerddom, right? Like you have to know Doctor Who, watch Star Trek, um, watch Monty Python. Am I getting them all here? Um, But uh, no. I've never really watched Doctor Who. Doctor Who's not my thing either. Uh, I got a friend of mine who likes a big Doctor Who fan. Uh, In fact, Mike from CPR has a TARDIS in his basement, which is awesome. It's not really my thing. You know, I love British culture. Uh, My history, of course, uh, you know, seven generations ago was from Britain, but not, it's just Doctor Who doesn't do it for me. For those who don't know, a TARDIS is the time machine. Yes. A what? Phone booth? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a British police box. Oh. So I think that was like a phone booth back in the day where, where they would, 
go into the phone booth and call the actual police. I don't know. So Doctor Who, of course, is the British science fiction television program. Do you notice how I spelled program? You spelled it wrong, yes? No, I spelled it very much correct. P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E. It was produced by BBC since 1963. The program, also spelled correctly, depicts the adventures of a Time Lord called the Doctor, an extraterrestrial being who looks human. The Doctor explores the universe in time-traveling spaceship called the TARDIS, which I guess is spelled in all capitals, so it must stand for something. Its uh, exterior appears to be a British blue police box, which is a common sight in Britain in 1963 when the series first aired. Of course, he's accompanied by a number of companions, the Doctor combats a variety of foes while working to save civilians, spelled with an S instead of a Z, and to help people in All need. kinds of misspellings here. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the Doctor that ties into the game is there's multiple Doctors. Yeah. And the thing is, and that wasn't originally planned. The original Doctor was an older dude. And then when he, he had health issues and was have to leave the show, they wanted to continue the show. So they wrote in the whole thing where the doctor can regenerate himself into a new form. But originally, wasn't it? He can only regenerate so many times, and they've already passed that number. Yeah, so one way or another from 1963 to the present, with a small break between 89 and 2005, which is actually a long break, they've had multiple doctors along the way. I believe they're currently on the 13th actor who's to play the doctor, who is Judy uh, Jody Whitaker. She is also the first female doctor and she's been portraying that since 2018. So they thought this really big British show, which I hadn't even heard of until five years ago, which is kind of weird. Is that going to work in the US, which is the major sort of market for pinball? Seems like a bit of a risk, doesn't it, Ron? It's definitely not. It's more of a geek theme, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's pretty niche. And even within sort of nerdy spacey, nerdy stuff. It's particularly niche, even within that area. Or Barry Asler said, I don't recall too much resistance from management over the theme. If you can show them that you truly believed in a project, they would usually give it a chance. Yeah. And that's, and that's sort of, uh, I think that still reigns true at Stern today, right? If they come with a bunch of themes and nobody is passionate about the theme, they're going to pass on it. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, that's, must be a holdback from sort of some of the Williams executives too, right? They're not going to give you a theme you don't believe in. Where in this time, you could even come with a theme, and as long as you believed in it, they would go after it. Now, some of the coolest mechs on here, we're going we're gonna to focus on mechs, but we'll also talk about a few other things. One of them is the topper that was removed from this game. Now, there's a thing that's called a Dalek, which is like a British robot, <laughs> right? He's got like an arm thing, and it's a circle. It's a Dalek. Is it that? Oh, it's bad. See, this is how this is. How do you know this? And I don't Uh, actually, I'm going to look that up now to make sure I'm correct on that, but I'm pretty sure it's not Dalek. Let's see. Dalek (laughs) pronunciation. What does it say? It says D A A L U H K. I would assume that means da. Da Dalek. Well, let's see. Well, it's, I think I can make it say it. Yep, Stalic. Okay, good. Good. So not only do I mispronounce names, I can also mispronounce this. Now, this mech was designed by a person named Zofia Ryan. 
And if you recognize the name Sophia Ryan, we mentioned her in the last episode, but uh, she had appeared on the Super Awesome Pinball Show uh, episode 24 with uh, David uh, Fix. She's currently over at uh, American Pinball. American Pinball. So she, uh, because she had worked on a lot of these games, a lot of her comments are in there and she spoke about how great it was to work on this topper, but it was eventually removed for cost savings. The wiring and the software features were all left intact in the back box and in the system. Um, so that actually allows you to reinstall the missing components if you wanted to put them in there. But, um, it was just too expensive to keep it in and they needed to keep the cost savings down. So that's pretty cool that you can, you can actually install it back in if you want to. I can remember seeing them. I know when I first got into the hobby a long time ago, you could get these, or at least someone was making them, at least a few of them. It was like a kit? It was some kind of kit. I just remember being at a uh, Allentown pinball show and they had three or four of these Doctor Who's with the topper all set way too loud. So all you heard were the Daleks saying, exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. Yep, I do know about that. Now the other pit, which is really what I talk about here is watch your fingers, right? The time expander toy. Now this thing is awesome. And it's funny because I wrote it this episode before, um, of course, uh, 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 Godzilla has popped up, but this is, this seems like a really expensive main toy. And the budget of this game basically went right into this one specific mechanical device. And, um, it was three toys in one. So this is a, what they call a change state toy, right? So it will change states or change the shots and things based on where it is positioned or what it is doing on the play field. Do you want to describe the time expander, Ron? Yeah, it has three levels. And the first level is reminiscent of Pinbot, actually. It's got two... Yeah, it's sort of like the capture, capture in the eyes. In the eyes. It's, just, it's the same thing. You put them in, then it raises up to a second level where you have these very unique-looking targets. They almost look like golf balls. Like if you had part... Yeah, of, kind of like the eyeballs in... Oh, um, yeah. Got eyeballs in um, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. Yep. You pound on those, and then it lifts up to the third level where the Daleks are. And they're like little flip-up Little flip-up targets. And you kind of shoot in and they kind of flip up and it goes into the subway underneath, which is pretty cool. So the kind of, it goes under the play field. It'll pop up through a vertical up kicker into, uh, I think it's the right side of the play field. Kind of cool. It makes some awesomely cool sound when you hit one of the Daleks. It just makes this explosion. It's, it's, it's a very unique toy and it, it lowers below the play field and then it will expand up onto the next level and then onto the next level to come right up almost to the glass. And it's, it's really, really impressive to see it, um, in person. I have played some doctor who a friend of mine has them, uh, shout out to Evan. And this is the one machine that has outlasted all of his other machines. And he says it will probably never leave. And, uh, this is a guy who cycles through a lot of machines and he's not even a doctor who fan. That's how cool this thing is. Now I call it the meat slicer cause it's super dangerous to work on. So there's actually a warning that opened when you open up the play field and when you're testing it, that says, watch your fingers. Yeah, when you open the coin door, because in this era, they didn't have the high power interlock switch on there to cut the 
high power when you open the coin door. So when you open the coin door, I mean, you can move the thing up and down. So it's just like, warning, warning. Yeah, big time, big time. And the th- and, and this mech is so big, and of course it goes under the play field. It has this massive mechanical harness to kind of hold it in place so it doesn't jiggle around. And then the subway underneath as well. But it has this rotating motor. It's got a picture of like person getting their fingers jammed in it. Like it's a big, it's a big dangerous friggin' toy. So, uh, Ron, who was Sophia Ryan, who at the time was Sophia Bill? She was the first female mechanical engineer hired by Williams Pinball. She holds six U.S. patents on pinball and casino games. Right out of college, her first American job was at Williams. She was interviewed by Gary Hendricks. As a female in pinball, specifically as an engineer, it must have been pretty difficult. We had talked at the time uh, about like Linda Deal and uh, Margaret Hudson and sort of how they had to kind of change their demeanor to work in a male-dominated industry. Zofia is actually pretty unique because she's Eastern European, so she kind of has this tough, gruff uh, exterior which is really kind of interesting and, and I think pretty cool. So she was able to kind of put up with that as well. So do you know anything about Gary Hendricks? Jimi Hendrix's brother? I, I don't know. So uh, Zofia would say that uh, Gary was a mechanical engineer, a manager. I have to say a real gentleman. I loved working with him. He was a great mentor and advisor, and he was just very friendly. So you can see that the engineering team at uh, at Williams at the time, of course, was a very close-knit group. Even though there were multiple design teams, there were designers that had wars and fights, that engineering team all shared a uh, collective language and stuff, and they built a lot of really great relationships. Sophia said, I didn't have a lot of experience. I was a nervous wreck, but I managed. I began my work without designing, helping out with engineering work. Yeah, so she would work with uh, pool sharks. She would work with the team on pool sharks at Midway. She worked on the machine, brought a pinbot under Python Angelo, uh, the party zone team under Dennis Nordman. And then quickly, Zofia was promoted after every single project from designer to eventually engineer. That's pretty cool. Uh, Zofia would say, I wasn't even thinking about being a woman. I didn't even know it was a problem, a woman or a man. I felt very comfortable. I became friendly with everyone. We were working our first jobs. So there you go. It didn't, it was not an issue for her. She just did her job and did it well. And she was promoted left and right. So good for her. And she is currently the senior mechanical engineer at American Pinball. Yeah, that's really cool. Of course, she would leave pinball. She's come back to pinball. And when David Fix, uh, he moved to American Pinball or API, as their director of operations and marketing, he made some internal moves by switching up some of the design groups. Uh, one of those moves was to bring in Dennis Nordman. And of course, uh, he was stuck at Deep Root with no engineer for quite a few years. And uh, that led to his departure at Deep Root. Uh, some people would call him the canary in the coal mine. And uh, he was speaking to David Fix about those who could help out in the engineering department. And he suggested that API hire Zofia. Uh, Zofia had worked briefly on Houdini with API before all uh, the artwork and everything was completed. And uh, she is somewhat familiar with American pinball. So it was a great fit. So if we go back to uh, really one of the first games that Sophia worked on, Doctor Who, we uh, we could talk about some of the different perks that are available on Doctor Who. So you choose a different doctor. 
each doctor gives you a different perk when you're playing. Isn't that, that right? That is correct. Which is the one that, which is the doctor you want to choose every time to get the I have points? no idea. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how many doctors there are. I think it's like seven. Yeah, there was seven at the time. So yes, they each have different, different abilities, different perks. Which is amazing. I, I wonder if this game were made today, if they would be able to even make something like this, because it has the likenesses of all seven doctors on the game. Would you think something like that made in today's market would be difficult to get? Oh, especially with like video assets. Yeah, the rights of everyone's likeness. Yeah, but that's one of the things that makes it cool. You can pick your doctor. You got the cool time expander. It's got the video mode, which is pretty cool. You you jump over things. I think it's short jumps or one flipper button. Long jumps or both flipper buttons. And you try to jump over objects and get into the TARDIS. Now, this also has the the uh, Barry Ausler, um, you know, right or left sweeping, long sweeping uh, ramp, which tends to be, some people call it a bit of a, a designing crutch, but you know what? It's, it's, it's a fingerprint, right? Steve Ritchie backhands everything. That's his thing. While uh, a long sweeping ramp, either on the left or the right, is Barry Ausler's thing. Of course, this also has an awesome, awesome drop target bank bank on the left side of the playfield. I think they're stand-ups. With, are they stand-ups? They wouldn't have paid for that many drop targets. No way. Those are stand-ups. Could have been dropped. Uh, could have been drop targets. <laughs> yeah, I think with the time expander cost, there was no way they were putting drop targets on this side. And the, the side ramp has the cool sonic boom. You can repeat the thing over and over, and then you get to the sonic boom stage. Yeah, it's got this really cool like uh diverter on the ramp where it'll lift up and then the ball will go off that off that left side ramp and then down into the uh the left side lower flipper, uh middle flipper. Um this is a three flipper game. The the third flipper is actually positioned really uniquely. It's very very low on the playfield on the left side. It's basically in the left out lane. Yeah, compared to where they usually are. I found it really difficult when I played this game to get that side ramp shot because I didn't have the timing down. It was very weird. It's a very flowy game. I really like this game. Very well designed, Barry Osler. You should uh, should be given the props for that. Artwork is just gorgeous by Linda Deal. Especially the back glass. I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a Doctor Who fanatic, but when I look at that and I see all the different doctors and they're in this, um, it's not, it's not, cartoony, but it is, um, it, they have taken some liberties. It's not photorealism like you would expect nowadays, but it is really, really well done. I know the guy with the scarf is the most famous one. Yeah. The guy with the, with the Afro yeah, Tom Baker. He was the, I believe he was doctor of the longest. Yeah. From 1974 to 1981, longer than anybody else. When it comes to the flyer for this game, it's about time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the doctor is in. <laughs> of course. The time expander. Players activate the time expander by locking two balls on level one of this time distorting mini play field. Level two will then be exposed in the challenge of restoring Earth time back to normal factor zero by lighting all 15 control panel lamps. That is a super, super nerdy sentence that only Doctor Who yes. people would know. Shooting into a door on level three starts multi-ball trademark and the chance for Dalek jackpots and Davros super jackpots to 300 million points. Ooh. It is like the time expander itself is new, but they did use some pinbot stuff in this. 
it, the two locks, and when when you hit the second level targets, it completes a grid, very pin body. I would say. Yeah, it's cool. I like this game. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a Doctor Who fan. This is a great game. Now, this game you couldn't give away uh, when people were trying to get rid of uh, their Bally Williams games, right? Everybody wanted Theaters of Magic. Uh, They wanted the Richie games. This one was not one of the ones that was greatly sought after. But in the years recently, it is expensive. It wasn't Fast Break either. It was was middle tier, I would say. Is it, would you say B level? Yeah, say B level. So, of course, this featured the new Opto Flipper button switches as Fliptronics 2. Mm-hmm. What the heck does that mean? Uh, it means they don't have leaf switches on the side. They use Optos instead, which, to be oh. honest, I prefer the leaf switches. You have less issues. Oh, so they, uh, yeah. So now you're getting into another board. Well, get into boring tech talk, but I would prefer. That's what Stern uses. That's what, that's what Stern uses to this day. They use the leaf switches. Yeah. Tried and true. It's got a different, unique feel. So tons of fun. That's and, and of course, that is Doctor Who. You know what you should do? Is when we go over all these mechs, you should do like a Facebook thing, like on our page. And our listeners can vote on what the best mech was. Oh, super yeah. good. So what I will do is I will toss up a uh, post about what you think was the best mech. Swing on over there and type in what you think the best mech that we spoke about is in today's podcast. And of course, you can choose anything, even drop targets, because those are the best <laughs> Mac ever created. And and Mr. David Dennis has prepared for this podcast for some time, as we have been specifically skipping over certain games, if you've noticed on the previous episodes, just because of the Macs. It's almost like a super intricate storyline Marvel thing or something. It's it's all coming together. It is. It is It is all coercing to actually this episode is the i didn't have enough content for everybody else's episode so i jammed them all that's into one. you're not supposed to say that you've just ruined the whole thing there <sighs> okay twilight zone yeah wide bodies make this big return so somehow somebody at williams talked management into building wide bodies again i don't like wide bodies ron they're fine they're too floaty duh I would say ball takes I forever. I would say hardly any of the Williams wide bodies from this era are floaty. Steve Ritchie just he's got these these horrible slings. Twilight on, Zone on Star is Trek. not floaty. Star Trek Next Gen is not floaty. Demo Man is not floaty. Do I do I need to continue? Do I need to go through all of them? So he's so Popeye angry. is that well. Hmm. Okay, we'll skip mm. that one. Uh, Roadshow is not floaty. Twilight Zone, of course, is the sci-fi. Uh, uh, also time travel, also weird hitchhiker piano theme. This is from April of 93. This is also a WPC Fliptronics 2. It sells, are you sitting down, Ron? Mm-hmm. 15,235 units. The concept and design by Pat Lawler, Larry DeMar, and Ted Estes. Artwork, like all Pat Lawler games, is done by John Yossi. Dots by Scott Slomany and Eugene Greer, and Music and Software by Chris Graner, Rich Karstens, and Software, Larry DeMar, Ted Estes. This is a pretty special, special game. Especially if you're talking about mechs, because there is a lot of them. This is, this is the peak here on, on how much crap can we jam into a literally, game. Literally, literally. Even Pat Lawler has said they put too much in this game. They let him go too crazy. 
coming off of Adam's family, he was basically told, go for it, whatever you want. Yeah, and in fact, Jerry Thompson, who's now Stern's epic sound person, saw Twilight Zone Pinball in 1994. He fell in love with it. And in 1998, he finally bought a Twilight Zone off of eBay, which was his first pinball machine. So you can see that this machine has inspired the people of today to design and build bits and pieces of pinball. Jerry Thompson, sound designer at Stern. This is his machine. It's quite the machine. And it's designed on the Twilight Zone television series. Of course, Twilight Zone is an American media franchise based on an anthology television series. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is a dimension of imagination, is an area in which we call the Twilight Zone. Ooh, very well done. And of course, uh, it was hosted by uh, Rod Serling, and the episodes are in various genres. They go from sci-fi to fantasy, horror, thriller, and they often conclude with an unexpected twist and some sort of unusual moral. The first series was shot entirely in black and white, probably the most famous, and ran on CBS for five seasons from 1959 to 1964. They also had a movie in 1983, which I remember seeing, a new series in 1985, and in 2019-2020, there's also been a series reboot on CBS. Now, I probably mentioned this in the other episode, but we'll see if you remember what I said, if I said this. Twilight Zone, they actually had to get three separate licenses for this game. Can you name them? Ooh, no, I can't. So they'd have to get, they have to get wrong. Right. He was a separate license. So they got that from his wife. They use his likeness. That's one. They have to get the song. Okay. You got the two harder ones first. Yes. They got the golden earring song, Twilight Zone. So the third one should be easy. So it's just the, the, the license in general. Yes. From Viacom. Twilight Zone. Only license for Twilight Zone. Wow. I'm, I was much better at this. Than yeah, you I got expected. the two harder ones first. Usually most people would just get uh, the Twilight Zone. This is a great game. I haven't played enough of this game. Every time I've ever been able to find it, it's always had crappy flippers or issues, and it's really tainted the experience. And because of that, I haven't given it a fair enough shake. But enter a new age of pinball where the flyer is all about the mechs. They even expand the mechs so you can see them like separately. They're enlarged to show texture. We show the um, the power, the power play field. I think it's called, what, the power field? Actually, yeah, the power yeah. and the power field, which is literally just a mini play field, but it's got two magnets on it that you control instead of flippers, which I never can do that good. It has a gumball machine that you actually load. It actually loads balls into the gumball machine. Super cool Mac. I mean, you could just, you could see it. You could see the balls in there. They pop out. They go into a subway. Then it has the clock. The infamous clock. Which actually keeps time. Well, if it's not broke, which it is on most Twilight Zones. Because the issue with the time, the issue with the clock is this is pre-LED. So all the lights in the clock are incandescent. And the whole thing is enclosed in plastic. And it would just. Just burst into flames. It would burn horribly. Just burn everything up. So that's why the clock almost never works. 
that was one of the. It's got a bunch of diverters. Bunch of diverters. It had uh, magnets. It had an uh, what the third magnet that was cut before production. Super super cool. Lots of lots of stacked and loaded. Yeah, gimmicks it's all about it. max. Even the simple things like the way you shoot the the, the piano shot, but you you hit a ramp, it comes up to like a a wire form, and then there's a diverter thing that just drops the ball down on the play field, and then you shoot it into the it piano. It like catches yeah. it and then pulls it off of the ramp. Like if there was ever a mech game, this is it. It's all about max, 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 max. It's it's also, and we mentioned it's a wide body. They convinced them to go to wide body. If you had this in a narrow body, you couldn't cram all the crap in it. There wouldn't be enough room. But what is also kind of interesting is Pat Lawler has said time and time again that he despises wide bodies. There's just too much space, and it incentivizes you to fill that space with stuff, even though that that stuff may not enhance the game itself. But what's neat about this game is... He's put this upper play field and gumball mech and everything up in the top left. And what's that, what that has done is it's actually created a narrow body shooter, which is quite interesting. And from a tech standpoint, I think this was, oh, let's see, this was the last Williams game that, had, that didn't have the high power interlock switch. So in Twilight Zone, if you open the coin door, it doesn't cut the, the high voltage like the 50 volts. That's the one that stops your heart, right? No, that would actually be the display voltage, like a hundred plus voltage. Oh, okay. No. So this, so that's the voltage that just makes you pee yourself. And yes. Fall over. No, this is just, it, it, it turns off all the coils and everything. So you can't short stuff into stuff and break your game. That's why they added the uh, interlock switch. But I think this is the last Williams game that didn't have it. It was also the last Williams games to use the uh, shorter coil stops. They went to longer coil stops after this. More useless tech info. Yeah. Now, it, it, this also has the the famed Pat Lawler five-lane bottom. Of course, Pat Lawler's favorite thing that he does, it, it he's described it as though musicians have a sound, uh, painters have a similar design. Well, the multiple flipper five-lane bottom geometry, repeatable loops, and some sort of side flipper shot is very much Pat Lawler's thing. But he loves that five-lane bottom, doesn't he? He does. Pat says, I tried to shake up my style, except for my five-lane bottom. I love it. I'll just try it, but it doesn't work the same. I smile because I like doing things that make people uneasy. My favorite part of this is, is the art. I mean, the mechs are cool. It's interactive. It's fun. It's got some deep code, which we'll get into in a minute. But man, the artwork that John Yossi did here is so perfectly reminiscent of the theme Twilight Zone, including that back glass, which I think is just stunning. And the funny thing is some of the mechs in the game really don't, like, I don't think there was an episode with a gumball machine, but it's in the game. If you know if there was a gumball machine episode, shoot us an email. I'm pretty sure there wasn't, but it has Talking Tina. So I, I, I like Talking Tina. She kills people. She kills Telly Savalas, who if you've ever seen the episode, he's a complete asshole in the episode and deserves to die. My favorite episode, and I think this is a bit cliche because most people's favorite Twilight Zone episode, is the one where the guy is the only survivor in the world so he can read all the books in the library. And yeah, he- Burgess Meredith, and he breaks his glasses so then he can't read anything. They're not all like that. They, they had some lighthearted episodes. I'll do this one quick. My, my, one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes there's this dude like out in the swamps, swamp land, like a redneck dude with his dog. And he comes home and everyone's crying. 
And like, why, why are they all crying? But no one can hear him or see him or his dog. And he looks and he sees himself. He's like dead. It's one of those deals where he's dead. Super cool. Right? So he's walking around the, uh, the wilderness there. And he, he comes up on this guy who can see him. It's like, you know, hi, I'm um, St. Peter or whatever. Come to heaven. You know, I'm here to lead you to heaven. And he's there like, oh, cool. So, all right. And he starts, oh, I'm sorry. You can't take your dog with you. It's like, excuse me? I can't take my dog. If heaven doesn't allow dogs, then I guess I don't want to be in heaven. Tells the guy, screw you. So then he, he walks around a while, and then he runs into this other guy who says, hi, I'm St. Peter. And like, wait a minute. That other guy said he was St. Peter. Like, oh, I'm afraid that was the devil. It's like, oh. And he's there like, I'm here to lead you to heaven. Can I take my dog with me? Oh, certainly. Everyone is welcome. Oh, he's got him. So he got he him. goes to heaven. And the whole moral is like, when you die, make sure you have man's best friend with you to lead you the right way. I love that episode. <laughs> uh, this, was the, this was really where they had all those stories, which have very much become cliche now in movie making, where the guy is dead and realizes yeah. he's dead, and we all know that. Or, you know, the spy who turns out to be, a, a, you know, double-crossed. Back in this time, in the 60s, in the early 60s, People were experiencing those plot twists on, a, you know, a visual medium for the first time. So it must have been pretty epic at and the look, time. And they still hold and up looking today. looking at the backlash, you could see things like the little spaceship that's from an episode, the, the little walking guy that is from an episode. You see Maple Street. The airplane with the, with the gremlin yep, dude Maple on Street. it. Maple Street. I like that. That was an episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The little television where the the creepy kid and family are watching that episode, and or the, the little kid they're scared of the little kid. You know what the weirdest thing is though? Rod Serling is not smoking. So in the original backlash, Rod Serling was smoking, and of course it was a bit of a calling card for him because he was a chain smoker, big time. His widow actually requested that the cigarette be removed from the final production unit after she observed the backlash art. Rod would usually smoke three or four packs a day. In May of 1975, Rod had three heart attacks, one on the operating table while undergoing open-heart surgery, and he actually died two days later. Smoking was the cause of his heart disease, and his widow did not want that to be part of his legacy. So it was removed from the art. Don't smoke, kids. Now it's the vaping. Get off the vaping. Hmm. You look dumb. Oh, yeah, and I forgot. This was the last game they, uh, Williams did without DCS sound. What, what was DCS sound? Digital compression system. It was their much improved sound system, especially with um, voice samples. Like games, Twilight Zone, and before, when you would hear a voice in a game, it would not sound very high quality. It, it, it would sound pretty bad. Yeah, it was very compressed, right? And it sounded like an AM radio. Yeah. Games after this, like, I think the next game was um, Indiana Jones Pinball Adventures, and after, way better. Way, way better. And that was used across all of Williams' platforms, too, even their video games. So it was the, the WPC system was coded in MIDI sounds, which was very much like ding, 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 stuff. And, um, you know, behind all of the coding, that was, that was basically what it was in the eighties and early nineties. Now, Chris Graner would say that we pressed the Yamaha synthesizers limitations 
to produce a masking strategy. It was two or $300 system at the time, and it was like milking every last cycle from that system. I was disappointed on bailing on uh, DCS on Twilight Zone because it wasn't quite ready. We had to move from DCS back to the Yamaha system. DCS had a varied and rich worlds with its sounds. They were truer to the genre than any of the other games. It was originally designed to be the new fancy DCS system, but they had to go back to the Yamaha WPC system because they just didn't have the time to finish all the experimentation. Well, technically it's all WPC system. Yeah, the whatever the system was called before. Yeah, so whatever the sound part of that was before DCS, the, the chip set. Now, Ted Estes, who was uh, one of the original uh, designers and uh, team members who designed a lot of the coding, actually spoke about some of the bits that were removed. So there were two actual magnets in the, in the orbit loop shot, weren't there? Yep, and the one was removed, and then modders kept putting them back. There's probably a ton of Twilight Zones out there where they have drilled a hole and put the magnet back in. Yeah, the, the reason... I, th I think that's a bit silly to put it back in, but the, the reason uh, Ted Estes, and I've got a link uh, to this, uh, this article that he wrote, one of them was that they had a concern that when the ball went around the orbit, it was going too fast for the magnet to catch it. So they actually had one magnet that was used to slow the ball down so that the second magnet could catch it. So drilling it and putting it back in isn't adding any extra functionality. I don't know if that's true. I, I think I remember somewhere like the multi-ball intro sequence, it would actually, the two magnets would each catch a ball or something. It had something to do with the multi-ball intro sequence. But you wouldn't see that, right? Because it's basically behind uh, actually, a bunch no, of Actually, no, you wouldn't see it because you can't see anything on the right side. But you'll yeah. know it's there. But you'll know it's there if you're mm -hmm. a modder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, there was also door panel flashers. And, uh, of course those, uh, those flashers were removed because they were way too distracting when the balls were locked. So underneath the artwork on the play field, there's a door lock, right? And underneath that were actually flashers rather than just lights. It's kind of neat. I can see how it could be distracting. Wow. And they thought that was distracting and they were just incandescent. Imagine if they were LEDs. Oh, wow. Now they also made some changes to that mini play field. The screen text and switch covers were added to the mini play field during production. There's also a leveling mechanism that was added and the words flip here so that people would kind of understand that they had to flip when the ball was in there because without physical flippers on that upper play field, you kind of don't know when to go. I guarantee you, if you have no idea, you'll see it pop up there. Okay, what am I supposed to do something? And it'll just drop right off and the game laughs at you. Uh, the other bit... So this machine um, has the pop bumpers from death on the left side, don't they? Yep. You don't want it in the pop bumpers ever. Ever. You do not want to be in the pop bumpers ever. It is the worst. And a lot of that comes from the pump bumpers being really down low on the play field because the, the upper play field is up in the top left with the other mechanical bits. Well, they moved those pop bumpers down lower and to the left, which are right over the left out lane and in lane. And man, when that ball gets in there, it's, it's power draining out the left side. Well, Ted Estes says that Pat wanted to try something a bit radical and place the jet bumpers. Again, notice they're Williams, so they're jet bumpers. 
That's what they call them at Williams. Very close to the bottom of the play field. After experimenting with the jet bumper placement on the Whitewoods, Pat, Pat decided that they weren't too bad down there. Something changed between the Whitewoods and prototypes, however. The ball kept flying down the left drain any time it went into the bumpers. After a few weeks of listening to complaints, Pat came in to work one morning, grabbed the drills, some T-nuts, posts, and rubbers, and installed the posts. The complaints died down after several thousand games into the production run. Yeah, so there's when you're playing in like big high-level tournaments, they'll remove some of these posts, isn't that right? Uh, they remove lots of posts, yeah. So the, the, the biggest issue when you start modifying on the fly is that then issues will pop up from the fixes. So Ted has another quote. Then people were complaining that the ball would fly out of the bumpers and straight between the flippers. Something else had changed. Pat decided to take out the post but leave the holes and put the post in the coin box for the operator to decide to use. Yeah, so I mean, come on. People complain about tweaks to play fields nowadays too, right? So this is already in production. And they're like, all right, screw it. We'll just... We'll just put them in the coin box. If they want to make it harder or easier, they can put it in. And, uh, wow. <clears throat> People complain about sending in a new post for, uh, you know, sort of rage's upper play field. Well, you know, it's pinball. That has always happened and will probably always happen. Now you talked about the clock a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Now there was a whole meeting about the clock when they were designing this game. They actually sat down specifically to chat about the clock. They needed some way to let people know that they had a certain amount of time to complete a task. Well, I have a Simpsons pinball party and on the upper play field, there is a countdown clock, right? That countdown clock is designed to tell you how much time you have to complete a task. Nowadays it's on the LCD screen. Well, this was the way that they did it back in the day was a physical, actual analog clock. And it kept time. It actually kept time. If it if it's working, it will actually have the correct time on it. Assuming your CPU has the right time. You know how much it cost? It was the most expensive tooling budget ever at Williams. That's the cost of to build the mech. Like all the bits and pieces that they had to, like all the stuff that they had to order, all the tools they had to order, and then the manufacturing. That's what the tooling budget is. The plastics had to be made. It was $200,000 for all the tooling to build the clock. Yeah, that broke the budget big time. And then the clocks themselves broke as they all fried. And then they just did, and then they stopped working. So the, one of the big secondary market toys to buy is the updated, you know, LED yes. clock mech. That's like those are all over the place. One of the longest running mods ever. I mean, I, 17 years ago when I got it, that was one of the main, like we have new clock boards. You'd get a new clock board and would have LEDs on it instead of incandescence and you'd put it in your clock so it actually work. See, when they put Twilight Zone out on test, Pat, oh. Then, then there's a couple other things, right? So there's the gumball machine and the power ball and how that ties into the Twilight Zone code. Was the code too much? The idea was that you had lights, camera, action at Gottlieb, which kind of created mode-based games. Shortly after that, you had the Adams Family, which had modes- and it was thought to be too crazy. And then this thing went way over when it came to, to code, right? Eh, I don't know if I'd say that. Is it hard? It's not. Well, okay. It depends how you want to play this. If you're playing Twilight Zone in a tournament, it's one of the easiest games in the world to play. You hit the two ramps, you lock a ball. You lock a ball. You start multi-ball. You get jackpots. When it's over, you hit two ramps. You lock a ball. Also, anytime the right orbit is lit, 
for the uh, to load the gumball machine, you hit it. And eventually you'll get Powerball Mania, and you play that. That's it. That's what you do. From a tournament strategy, it's one of the easiest games to learn. Now, if you actually want to play all the modes in the game, which nobody does, you know, you hit... I, I can't remember if it's both ramps or one ramp, but you hit a ramp. I think and it's then, both. And then you hit the, the, you hit the um, scoop. I think it's either scoop. I think there's the, the scoop up front, but I think you can hit the piano shot and it starts some mode too. I don't remember. Because no one plays the modes. Because the only time I play it is in tournaments. But it has all these different modes, the, the panels, they're called. They didn't call them modes. And if you finish which are, them Which all, are down in the middle of the play field. They're like all these things. It looks like a doorway. Yep, and you get through them all, which you don't have to finish any of them. You just have to start them. Then you can get uh, lost in the zone, which is the wizard mode. But the thing is, it's not really rule complexity. It was more like, um, uh, what's the word? Um, confusion? Like people would get a Powerball and it would say, put it back. And they'd be like, what do, what do you mean put it back? What am I supposed to do with this? They had no clue what they were supposed to do. Or like we said on the, the power, you hit it up there and it's like, okay, am I supposed to do something? Uh, I'm supposed to hit buttons. So Pat Lawler said, we went and drove it off a cliff. We carefully integrated the theme. It didn't do that well. It was not understandable. Pinhead's new, but you end up playing to a smaller audience that wants more and more and more. Adam's family delivered on what regular people wanted to do. Twilight Zone didn't. Yeah, so there was, there was a lot of concerns about the complexity and the Twilight Zone code. So when they put Twilight Zone out on test, and back in the day, they would, they would have a secret location or a couple of locations somewhere in Chicago where they would put a machine and then they'd kind of sit there and have some beers and watch people play it and look for stuck balls and, and they'd watch for people's reactions. And that's when Pat said that he came in on a Monday and somebody told him one of the most horrible things that he had ever heard. Oh, I must've just heard my story. <laughs> yeah. They had it on test and some kid got the Powerball and didn't know what to do with it. And he just screamed, I hate this game, threw up his hands and walked away. Ouch. Pat would say, when you hear that, it's like putting a gun to your head. You know you're done. So that's, that's, not, that's not good. Although they still sold 15,000 units. So you've put a, you put a whole lot, of, you put a whole lot of, of shenanigans in there. You're excited and you got this game and it's going to be so much fun. And then you got, what I, Powerball's pretty cool. I have to agree. It's kind of a neat concept. Let's explain that a little bit more. The Powerball is a ceramic ball instead of a steel ball so it's it's like white milky white color and it's super fast and it's super fast it's much lighter and the game has a uh, sensor i think it's in around the the where it comes out into the shooter lane where it can detect if it's balls metal or not if it's not metal it knows it's the power ball and the game will tell you power ball so how do you, so if you drain the Powerball, how does it know to get it back up into? It just sits in the trough. So then you have, eventually we'll have to play with it in regular Eventually, play. if you lock enough balls, then it'll be, it'll come out. Ooh, that doesn't sound very good. It's not necessarily fair. You, you could walk up, if you're playing someone, you could walk up and it just so happens you get the Powerball and they don't. But uh, it is, it is cool. Um, if you lock the Powerball in the right orbit, goes into the gumball machine and then you get the, Powerball, and you get a multi-ball where you're supposed to shoot it up into the power field and hit the magnets and try to get it. You have to hit it like forward into the uh, like off the play field, and then you get Powerball jackpots, 
which is hard to do because you got to keep you got to still be a multi ball while you're doing all this and coordinate it and not lose the ball. It is not easy. It's just too hard. Uh, just it just sounds it that sounds horrible. That sounds way too hard for an average person, probably. And and I'm and I'm I would say I'm an average pinball player. Like I'm decent, right? I'm not a beginner. I'm not you. You know, I'm not even you know somebody who's who's got a very regularly uh, moved uh, turned over collection that's pretty experienced in a bunch of games. I'm a little bit better than the the person that comes up to play, and it sounds way too hard. <laughs> I didn't even describe the multi, the regular multi ball. Ugh. You hit the say, say you hit a jackpot, which is the piano shot. So normally you'd hit the the right ramp. It comes around to the diverter thing. He puts it in front of the flipper. You hit it, and you got to do all this while you still have multiple balls in play. Then if you, if you get good, you can coordinate it where you get the jackpot. But then then you have to relight the jackpot, which is the shot under the upper left flipper. That's through the pop bumpers or kind of okay, above yeah. the pop bumpers. Yeah, it's so like you, a hidden. So, so you actually have to hit the right orbit. That's why the magnet's there. It'll stop it. It'll feed it to that upright flipper. You hit it in there to relight the the jackpot, and then you got to get it back up to that diverter thingy again, and then hit it in the side again. You got to coordinate all this with multiple balls and not drain. It's super fun when you can do it. I bet. You had mentioned that they sold fifteen thousand units, and they had anticipated selling a buttload of twilight zones they gave pat lawler and the team just a massive amount of leeway to come over things but with big sales of machines and the release of amazing machines like twilight zone you start getting into some some sales issues with your sales team which are independent business owners distributors and they needed to control some of the sales with this era's massive boom in sales Many distributors had exclusive rights to sell machines in a given territory. So for example, you were given, you know, upstate New York was your territory and you couldn't sell machines down in New York city, or you could only sell machines in the Midwest. You couldn't send machines to California, but of course, some distributors would sell a lot of their units outside of their areas. But of course, this was difficult to prove and to track. So on Twilight Zone, because they expected this to be a massive hit, they knew that people would be tempted to sell outside of their territories. So what they did is they printed a secret serial number on all of the playfields right above the door image. And you can only see with a black light. Wow, it's like Stranger Things, but before Stranger Things. Pat says, if the game turned up outside the territory, it was assumed that the distributor had bootlegged the game outside of his territory. Then it was up to management to decide what penalty to incur on the offender. Remember, this was during a time when it was profitable to sell and operate pinball machines. This practice would be laughable today because any sale of a pinball machine is a good sale. Ouch. (laughs) So, um... Now, Pat Lawler's a quote a little bit, a, a couple of minutes ago, he had said that it, it didn't do well. The sales didn't do well, but 15,000 units is pretty nuts. Yeah. Anyone would want to sell 15,000. Clay Harrell, of course, was uh, the co-host and host of TopCast, which is uh, one of the locations where we get a lot of the content for this podcast. Now, in that episode with Pat Lawler, Pat's, you know, talking about Twilight Zone. He's like, oh, we sold a ton of them. We sold like 17,000 units. Then Clay Harrell says something which I found kind of interesting. 
Clay points out that a lot of those sales were on what he calls closeout. Do you know what closeout is, Ron? I don't know. What's a closeout, Dave? I don't know either. So I went and I kind of like did a little bit of looking. Basically what it means is the inventory that was built up at Williams was sold at a significant discount to the distributors to get them out of the factory and get them done. So they anticipated to sell so much of these machines and Pat was very proud at how much they sold. And then sort of clay kind of brings them down a peg. I don't know if he did that by accident, but he just says, Oh, a lot of those were by closeout, right? Which basically means they were trying to get rid of them because they had built too many. So they sold them at a significant discount. I like how you say distributor. (laughs) Hey, pinheads. I just wanted to let you know that when I'm not doing this podcast and making bad jokes, I'm Dave, the financial guy. At Dennis Financial, our advisors strive to provide a return on life for our clients, not just a return on investment. The value of advice is something that we take very seriously. A valuable advisor doesn't just provide investment advice, they share wisdom. And this is where the true value of an advisor emerges. Don't take my word for it. Just listen to Ron Sterling, an average Canadian. Yay. If you're in Canada, Dennis Financial is for you. If you're looking for a more human dimension to your financial advice, Dennis Financial Inc. has you covered with advisors licensed in most Canadian provinces. We're also doing secure online video meetings. Contact me via email at david at dennisfinancial.net for a free rate quote and a copy of our Value of Advice ebook, or check out dennisfinancial.ca. Insurance solutions provided by Dennis Financial Inc., Canadian residents only. So that's when we're going to get into something really cool. And this is a game that I haven't played, but everybody that does play it basically talks about how amazing it is. And that's The Shadow. It's, of course, a movie licensed theme from November of 1994. This is a WPCS system. Sells 4,247 units. Ooh, that is quite the difference in a year when it comes to sales. The designer is one Brian Eddy. Art by the legend Doug Watson. Dots by Scott Slomany and Eugene Greer again. Music and sound by Dan Forden. Additional software provided by Mike Boone and Brian Eddy. So, what is The Shadow? Uh, it was like a radio show, I believe, back in the day. Of course, this is based on the 1994 American superhero, obviously used loosely, film starring Alec Baldwin who's not Billy Baldwin and not Stephen Baldwin, but they all look the same. He's Eric Baldwin. Based on the 1930s pulp novels, which I had to look up what that means. It's basically like a uh, a, a before comic book sort of sci-fi thing. Of course, radio dramas and uh, in the future, actual comics. I know the radio show was just like they would do the line, who knows? The shadow knows. Ooh. It was a big deal, I guess. Cause back in those days, nowadays we're having these like, uh, radio dramas, which are actually now just like podcasts. But back in the day, the radio drama was very much what was, uh, what the family would listen to on, you know, Wednesday nights instead of watching what we now see as the bachelor. <laughs> so that radio dramas were the television of its time. Now, this film was released in theaters in July 1st, 1994. It received mixed reviews, which I think is actually quite kind, and was a commercial 
failure. It had a $40 million budget, made $48 million at the box office. It made $8 million. How is that a failure? It holds a 35% Rotten Tomatoes rating. Have you seen The Shadow 1994? I have not. I'm very proud of you because if you would have said, oh yeah, I've seen The Shadow, and I'd be like, you've seen The Shadow, but you haven't seen any of the Daniel Craig James Bond movies, I would have driven down to upstate New York and I would have burned your house down. I'm sorry. It does have Tim Curry in it though. So that makes me kind of want to see it. Tim Curry has a pinball connection. He was in this. He was also in Congo. Wait a second. Tim Curry, the basketball player? No, no, that's Stefan Curry. Oh. So this is uh, designed by Brian Eddy. This is his first designed game. And of course, Brian Eddy would become, you know, a uh, mythical creature within pinball. He was a programmer previously, wasn't he? Yeah. Did games like Bride of Pinbot, Black Rose. He's the guy that came up with the whole cow thing. I guess he was really into cows. So he started putting cows into all his games. So then everyone else at Williams followed suit and started putting cows in all their games. That's original. Kind of is. It's not like a goat. A goat. Um, Of course, Adam Ryan has a really uh, close relationship with Brian. They're good buddies. And he would say in his Topcast interview that Brian was very team-focused guy. Whatever the theme was uh, that he was working on, he wanted to hear everyone's opinion, no matter how diverse or odd they were. As a team, we would sit down and decide what what was suitable for the game. And if you had a good idea, it would go into the game. I was just thrilled to have my dots or my ideas and even some of my speech that I wrote in the game. Is this a good game, Ron? Yes. Why is it a good game? Because uh, it shoots good. It's fun. And it has cool mechs. Specifically, it's got the battlefield, which is, it's not new in that games like like Swords of Fury had a very similar little mini play field where you hit targets in the back. Uh, but this one has, a, instead of a flipper, it's got like a kicker thing you slide back and forth. So it makes it, it, makes it unique. And then it also has the diverters, the, the purbas, where you can, everyone loves diverters, but wouldn't it be great if you could control the diverters? Well, Shadow lets you control two diverters. So you have two ramps, but in effect, in effect you have four shots. And you can control them, the diverters. Yeah, so you shoot up a ramp, and you can click an extra button on the yep. left side or the right side cabinet, and it will flick the diverter, and then that ramp will go either left or right. And you, you are in full control of these diverters. You can do cool things like create massive air balls by hitting the ramp and then flicking the diverter as it's going up the ramp so it knocks the ball off everything. And you can just sit there and click the diverters nonstop, just back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, which is awesome. If you've got young children, then you have the, in the back, it has a magnet, which almost certainly will have caused some, um, discoloring of the paint over it. So they call this the sanctum, the sanctum, the sanctum is just a huge drop target, custom drop target, much taller, but it is basically a drop target in front of it. There's a magnet that stops the ball and then it pulses the magnet to throw the ball into the sanctum. Now, a sanctum, of course, is a sacred place, especially a shrine within a temple or a church. But most people make this as a butthole joke. Okay. You got to make sure you don't have a dirty sanctum. All right. Canadian, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> just just if you didn't know. So, Ron, why does the sanctum get dirty? Because uh, there's a magnet in front of it. 
and it just mm. burns the play field. I've seen, other than a restored shadow, I've never seen just a regular shadow that didn't have burn marks in front. So they even just sell stickers. You could buy Mylar stickers that people just stick on yeah. there too. Very cool. Now the art, the art is, uh, it leaves a little bit to be desired. The quality of the art is actually very good. Um, of course that art, you know, would you expect anything else from Doug Watson on the art there? But it, um, it's, it's got a lot of, a lot of Alec Baldwin. Yep. He's front and center. He's Alec Baldwin. And this is like early 90s Alec Baldwin where he was just gorgeous as opposed to now where he's sort of like, I'm Alec Baldwin. I could be whatever the hell I want, Alec Baldwin. This was like big time peak Alec Baldwin. I mean, the shadow himself is kind of in the background. He's not even... Which is the better designed art part. And then Khan. Khan is the bad guy. Not, not Star Trek Khan, but this Khan. You mean Benedict Cumberbatch? Uh, no, no, I no, 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 no. I mean re- real con Star Trek. That that would not be. That would be Ricardo Montalban. But we're talking about the shadow. Let's not start this again. Well, you, we don't need to have a we don't need to have a marital here on on. There's the no debate. I'm right. So why was uh why was Alex so big? Do you think why was his head so big on the back class? So much bigger than everyone else. Adam Ryan speculates it could have been based on heavy handed license. Doug Watson did the painting for that. He might have been responding to some sort of demand where Alec Baldwin had to take up, you know, 50% of the backlash and the other actors only take up 25%. That's sort of like the the Sandra Bullock getting the shaft in uh, Demo Man. No, she didn't. She's the same size as all of them. She didn't get a game. Oh. No, yeah. If you if you look at Demo Man, they did the opposite. Okay, everyone has to be exactly the same size. Mm, interesting. There's some complexity in this pin, but we're not talking crazy Twilight Zone complexity, right? We're not talking about things moving and changing and adjusting and 12 or 13 things. You got the big battlefield, you got these really cool diverters, but that's kind of it, right? Well, you know what you don't have? What's not in this game that's in most games? An auto launcher. No, it has an auto launcher. A subway. Uh, it, actually, I don't know if it has a subway, but that's not the answer. Just look okay, at the playfield. No what, what is it missing? What playfield element is it missing? I'll give you a clue. There's only one of them on Godzilla. Pop bumpers. There's no pop bumpers. There's no pop bumpers. Or oh, since it's Williams, I'm sorry. There are no jet bumpers on the playfield. Wow. There wasn't even even in this era of Williams, where they pretty much let the designers do what they wanted. Very few games would have no pop bumpers at all. This is one of. Two of them I can remember. I know No Fear doesn't have one either. So less pops, more mechs. And of course on the flyer, where the shadow falls, earnings rise. <laughs> wow. Very good reading there. No one can resist the power of the shadow. Has he cool, um, I think it's a forty-five, the gun launcher. The ones that Williams made that were not plastic, they were like metal and they... Yeah, you could just grab it and you could slam tilt that thing. You can lift the whole game up. You can hurt people with the thing. The worst part about that is is catching it like in your leg when you're moving like left to or right. Or if you have to move it in a vehicle and that's the part that sticks out so you can't close a door or something and you have to take it off. So th- th- what's interesting about this game, this is a really flowy game, right? It's got that repeatable loop that everybody loves to shoot. It has a couple of orbit shots. 
It's got that really neat sort of center looping return shot thing. It's got these diverters with left to right. One of them, uh, particularly the left side ramp and the diverter are really close to the player. So there's, there's lots of like action going on there. Yep. And two, and two standups. So if you miss the ramp, you can hit them and drain. It's a, it's a dangerous, dangerous game. And what blows my mind about this era when they're designing high flow, really precise shots, they're doing all of this stuff with paper on a drafting table. What's a drafting table, Ron? Uh, it's a big table that you draw on. You draft on it. I would think by the 90s, they did have CAD. I'm pretty sure they, did, they didn't have SolidWorks yet, but I know they had CAD by the 90s. That's what they were using. But even what's even crazier about this stuff is not just the designer doing the shots, but the engineer who has to design the ramps that have to be manufactured and bent and, and, and welded and screwed together they're using drafting tables to do all of these designs as well. Zovia says, right now in 3D, you just design it and it just calculates all the information for you. But at the time, I had to do projection on every radius, every corner entry level. I had like a thousand lines, horizontal and vertical, and I had to connect them all to create a bottom view or side view. Yeah, that, we're talking some serious, serious work. And of course, speaking of, of the drafting table, eventually Williams would begin using a program called AutoCAD. Do you know what AutoCAD is? I know, I know what it is, but I don't know what it is. Like it's a drawing software, right? Yep. Is that basically it? It's pretty much, yeah. Instead of writing it up on a drafting table, you do it on a computer. And I believe they still use some iteration of CAD, even, even at Stern. I know they use SolidWorks for like the 3D stuff. I think there is some, still some CAD, though, that gets used. Now, Dennis Nordman would say that his first game in AutoCAD was Indy 500. Before, it was pencil, paper, and mylar. We drew on big mylar sheets. It was a big learning curve for sure going to AutoCAD, so it probably took longer. And that brings us into Dennis Nordman's crazy mech game, Indianapolis 500. Oh, I love Indy 500. This is a sports racing theme from June of 1995. It's the Williams WPC Fliptronics 2. It sells, ooh, 2,249 units. Yeah, hard to get one. And they're usually very expensive. They, of course, designed by Dennis Nordman, art by Dan Hughes. Now, he did Corvette, and as well as he did all the Alvin G. Gottlieb machines, uh, as well as uh, Paul Barker did a little bit of work on this, and he's known for Junkyard Whodunit, but he didn't really do much art either. Dots, Adam Ryan and uh, Brian Morris. Music and sound by the legend Chris Graner, software Mike Boone, and Craig Styla. C-C-S-Y-L-A. Syla? Syla. Doesn't our shirt say, like, mispronouncing names for something like that? It's perfect. Swing on over to silverballswag.com. And make sure you say Alvin G, not Gottlieb. It's not Gottlieb. He couldn't use the name Gottlieb, even though that's his name. Yes, Alvin G and co. So Indianapolis 500, this is the annual motor race which is billed as the greatest spectacle in racing. Of course, it is traditionally held on Memorial Day weekend in May. It is best known for being part of the IndyCar series and an integral piece in the coveted triple crown in motor racing. Ron, that is when you win the Le Mans 24 hours, 
the Monaco Grand Prix from the Formula One and the Indy 500. That is the Triple Crown. Wow, you learn something new every day. The art done by Dan Hughes. You can see on IPDB the sketch before it was determined it was a Bally or a Williams game. This backlash for a person, I'm a big motorsports fan. I love motorsports. Uh, I'm a big F1 fan. Actually, while we're recording this, qualifying is happening. And uh, the backlash on this is awesome. It's got like a bunch of cars at Indy. They've got that really cool 1990s Indy car looking thing. Open wheel racing. It is an awesome awesome backlash for a motorsports fan this also has the the cabinet artwork uses a lot of red so this is another game that is very difficult to find a non-faded example of super faded super faded usually every time you find one of these ron probably one of the most cliche things that you could put onto the marketing operators start your engines yes the flyer well, what else are you going to put on there? Um, what, what is it? Uh, racing to higher profits, maybe, could be one. We built this one to move fast, which is actually which is actually the one that's written there. Damn, I'd like mine better. Racing to higher profits. Hear the engines roar. See the lights flash. Feel the excitement when Bally straps you into the fastest game around. Indianapolis 500. Dun, dun, dun. Hit the turbo, Bobby. It's a cool game. I really like Indy 500. So the toys on this one, we got a little turntable thing for the model. It's like a record player. The model race car, it spins around the track. Then you have the turbo, or I'm sorry, the turbo lock unit trademarked. Captures the ball in its spitting chamber for two to four ball multi-ball. Then fires them simultaneously onto the play field. It's kind of a neat little mech. Now, the problem with the turbo mech is the entryway is difficult to get in without it clunking around, right? Eh, not if you're good. Oh, I'm sorry. God, I hate you. When I watch good players play this, I, I see they like never miss that shot. I do like... It also has a really neat left side diverter, which is like a little race car coming down the left side. And every time the ball goes by, it kind of changes its movement. It's almost like a, a diverter thing. Other thing I like about this game is it tells you if you're not using the third flipper. It's a third three flipper game, and it's got the the upper right flipper, which is pretty much to hit that turbo shot. And if you let the ball just pass by there enough without using it, it'll give you a line. Like he hasn't taken one shot at that. I don't know if he knows the player. The flipper's there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, lo- I love that little. Like I wonder if he knows the flipper's even there. It's like it's the 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 call out commentary on the, like this game is so perfectly a racing car game and we've talked about NASCAR and Grand Prix at the Stern days with Pat Lawler but it just doesn't get it doesn't have the same fun feeling as this machine does. This is when Dennis Norman was in his uh, I call it the, the flow phase where he did like Whitewater and then he did uh, Demo Man. And he did, did this one. He was all about the flow. This one has the payback time repeatable uh, ramps left and right, where you could just smash left to right to left to right. And it is awesome because they're like these plastic ramps with this awesome sort of uh, bend in the ramps. And the way that it comes back to your flippers is so smooth and fun. 
you just get so much excitement from shooting ramps on this game. And that's what Dennis Nordman is known for is his killer ramps. That's what we're talking about. Max, it has those bizarre custom targets, doesn't it? Like on the top. Mm-hmm. I've never seen in any other game. They have these four LED lights on the standups and you shoot the standups and it gets rid of one of the lights and there's four lights on each ramp or each uh, thing. This was the only game where they use those targets. That's the only thing that scares me about owning certain games when you hear, you know, this is the only game they use these targets. Like, oh, what happens if they break? But when you look underneath the play field, it's not scary at all. No, because it's all above the play field. It's very modern, stern looking. It's under like there. Devil Man. There's not much under the playfield, believe it or not. It's all above the playfield. You can actually get some of these machines that have slightly different color, and it's not from the fact that the, the, the color has, has been, you know, bleached by the sun, but they had actually started to produce some of the playfields and some of the side art. And the German distributor came out and basically said that the color looked like baby colors. And that scared them so much that they actually decided to make some changes to the colors. Because it was their German distributor who bought more of their games. Yeah, he's the guy that we've popped up a few times throughout. I don't know who it is, but they always talk about a German distributor came in and There's scared the There's the name of the company, and we really should know that for, since we're doing history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead and email that in to Silverball. Yeah, if I think hard enough, I might be able to remember what they were called. But they, if they wanted something, they got it. You know, if they want, like, we want lightning flippers on this, it's going to have lightning flippers on it. They didn't like the colors, though, so they had to change the colors. Of course, this is Indy, Indy 500, Indianapolis 500. This is, you know, kart racing. That's got to be an easy license to work with, right? Well, Adam Ryan says Indy 500 was challenging because the licensor didn't want us showing pretty much anything fun. It was driving the cars going left to right, cars going right to left, cars coming at you, cars going away from you. As a dots guy, that's very limiting. We have one car accident on the display, and then the announcer comes in and said, but he's okay. Kind of the excitement of motorsports is crashes, right? For the average person, yes. And around this time... Right. This is after the death of Ayrton Senna, who is probably one of the greatest F1 drivers of all time uh, in 1994. Motorsports was particularly sensitive about people dying because they've been changing rules and regulations. I would assume that they didn't want to show much of that. But as a doc guy, Adam Ryan, I think, killed it when it comes to the match sequence of this game because it shows all the different generations of indie cars with numbers on the side, which is your matching number, and it's class. But you know what's not tip-top class? What's that? Red and Ted. Oh, Roadshow. Red and Ted's Roadshow. You, oh, you talk, talk about mechs. This game, this game has to weigh 400 pounds of, of stuff in this game. So you like Funhouse? You like a talking head? We're going to have two of them. Exactly. This is construction, uh, country music theme. This is from June of 95. It's a Williams WPC Fliptronics 2. It is a wide body, 6,249 units designed by Pat Lawler. Art, like all Pat Lawler games, John Yossi. Dots, Adam Ryan, Scott Shalomany, and Eugene Greer. Music and sound by Chris Graner. Software, 
Dwight Sullivan and Ted Estes. And then they sold another 10, so it was 6,259. Oh. You said 49. I did his 59. I love it. Two talking heads. Pat Lawler says that he wanted to bring Rudy's family along, and they had to retire Rudy because he was too popular, but yet they still wanted talking heads, and at this time, instead of yelling at you, they could yell at each other. Mm Mm-hmm. When we talk about the talking heads, what are we talking about here? They're animatronic heads that literally move. Their eyes follow you around, and their mouths move up and down, and they talk. And they call it pinmation. That's what Williams called it. I'm sorry, pinmation trademark. It's um, now you got a wide body. Pat Lawler has once again given a wide body, which he doesn't like, but he can jam two heads instead of one. And they do a pretty darn good job, actually. Yeah, and and Jam is right, because from people I've talked through through my 17 years in this hobby, a, a lot of people have told me, been the biggest pains in the butt to work on are the two heads on Roadshow. So one of the heads is Ted. One of the heads is Red. It's a male-female yep, combo. Yeah, Ted's the dude. Red's the woman. He's driving like a little bulldozer. So in front of his face, he's got two stand-up targets on like a, a rising mech. So you hit the, which is sort of like the blade of a bulldozer. It was supposed to look more like the blade of a bulldozer, but they had to change it. Yeah, because it's just balls are going to go crazy. So it's kind of cool. And it pops up, and then you can smack him in the face, just like you could Rudy. And then Red, on the other side, she has the open mouth with the side shot from the flipper, just like Rudy. So we're kind of doing the same thing, but we're doing a little twist on it. And I mean, Rudy sold units, right? They sold like what? 10,000 of those 10, things? 10,000 plus, yes. It's, it, was a, it was a draw. So they're like, okay, well, if they can make one, well, surely this one can, you know, Pat Lawler and the magic and after Twilight Zone and after Adam's family and, you know, he can do it again. He, it's, this struggled a bit, this pin. Ted, it, Tim Kitzrow again. They're, they're all around MVP of, of voice acting, did so many voices. And then they had Carlene Carter, who did the voice and the music of the song, every little thing that you get when you... So she was the country singer. Every little thing I think about you. You get to hear country music when you get in a multiball. Who doesn't want that? I'm not a country music fan. Um, it doesn't, like, I don't, I don't despise it. It's just not my genre of music. But I can see how that can wear on you. Pat Lawler said, say what you want about the music, but we weren't out there on a limb. There's a whole part of the country that likes country music. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a turd? Is this game a turd? Hell no. No, no, no. Nope. It just doesn't get a lot of love. The thing about Roadshow, Williams was kind of trying a philosophy of they wanted you to do buy-ins. They wanted you to to keep buying it. They would have they actually have a an extra button on there, and you can buy in. You can continue your game, and this was one of the games they really pushed that hard. Even in the promotional materials, they specifically. So if you drain out after three balls, you can buy back. Yes, in. and they made it. It's extremely linear, and you try to cross the country, and they specifically made it so the average person is not going to be able to get across the country. They're going to have to buy in to get all the way across the country. That was the philosophy, but. Since we're talking about mechs, it has the two heads. It also has the um, has like a radio thing that actually doesn't do anything. But it also has a small little thing flips flipper. 
the same spot on the left side, and you hit across instead of the swamp, it's a bunch of stand-up targets. Very, there's a lot of elements. There's you got your Adams family. Obviously, you got your fun house. It's got a ton of habit trails in it. One of the bits that's kind of neat is that it has a physical ball lock on the left side, and it also has the extra plunger on the left, just like Funhouse. Right, and then that actually goes all the way up, and it hits Ted in the side of the yep. head, which is kind of yep. fun. And he'll he'll tell you he got hit. The major issue is the is there's like when you're playing in the code, you can go east coast or west coast, right? Uh no, there's different paths. Right, but if you if you get the wrong path in the beginning, you're screwed. You get the right? path that where you go to Miami, you're good. If you get the other path, you're screwed as far as score. Something like that. Ah. I mean, yes, it's linear, but again, I like goofy games, and this is very goofy. Why don't you own a roadshow? I don't like it that much. But, but when we had this at <laughs> League, everyone hated it, and I was just like, "What? it's all right. But but you and I both like uh, both like dialed in, right? So I, I love I love Ted. I'm all tired. I'm all worn out. I'm shutting down. Then he goes to sleep, and then you hit it in his mouth, and then multi ball starts. It's got lots of road signs. Yep, and it's one of the one of the Williams games where they use custom uh, colored legs. They use oh yes, they're blue legs instead of the silver. Yeah, that bothers me. I don't like powder coating. That's not my wow. thing. Wow. A lot of uh, people will be upset with that comment. Yeah, I just don't. I just, I just like not even ACDC where the, it's all red and it looks cool. No, I think like that's okay. Like if it's if it comes factory, but I just, I just like the pro black matte black. I like just the regular sort of silver. Okay. I don't know what it is. And of course, the flyer. It's a big country. Someone's got to tear it up. Why did you say it like that? That's offensive. Uh, because it's roadshow. That's how they talk in the game. See, in the game, you're part of a demolition crew, Red and Ted. You're destroying things across the country. If you want to talk about offensive accents, they are definitely in the game. Just get the uh, get the taxi driver mode and you'll, you'll be offended. It's literally California or bust. Well, it's literally California or bust when this road crew from hell takes on the highways and a runaway bulldozer. And with two Pinmation characters, Dual Plungers, and Carlene Carter as the voice of Red, who wouldn't want to go along for the ride? Isn't Carlene Carter just the most country name you've ever heard? Every little thing I think about you. I mean, it, it doesn't get more mecky than two animatronic heads. And, and these heads are the ones that have the, the parts that break inside for the eyes that are like impossible to get. Right? And you can hit them. Again, that's another cool thing about these toys. When you, it's one thing to have a cool toy, but when you have a cool toy that you can hit and it reacts to you hitting it, like ow! You know what I love here is you can tell that this is a Pat Lawler game because it's very wholesome. Oh yeah, it is one hundred percent right. And the way that it's written is: Carlene Carter is the voice of Red, a brassy country girl with a heart of gold and a freewheeling way with the bulldozer. Like, what is going on here? Tedder's a two-stepping partner, a good guy with a bad roadside manner. There you go. Penmation is back. Thank God this is the new Williams DCS sound system. Oh, you get to hear the awesome country music in the best possible sound. I think that that music would just drive me insane. I haven't played enough of this. You only but hear it I, during I, multi-ball. It's not that bad. Doesn't multi-ball happen like every no. game? Well, well, if you're decent, probably. Wow. Thank you for mm-hmm. that. You're suggesting that I'm not. I didn't say uh, that. I said, if you're decent. Actually, go go back. I want to see what the weight is of the machine. It actually has the weight there. What? 300 pounds. Yeah, 300 pounds. Thank you, wide bodies. 
this is a time when um, when things get to a, a significant downturn. This is this is a, a peak in a series of valleys when it comes to sales numbers. And this is when they start to get into some experimentation. And that brings us into a game called Safecracker. This is a cops and robbers theme. It is uh, from March of 1996. This is the WPC 95. It's kind of like a like a novelty game. It's a little less pinball, I think. Yeah. It sells 1,148 units. There's so many custom things on this. I think even the flippers are custom. I don't think they're standard two-inch flippers, if I recall. They're like specific to Safecracker. It's got a smaller cabinet. The play field is massively heavy. This was designed by Pat Lawler, John Yossi on art, Adam Ryan on dots, Dan Ford on music and sound, and Dean Grover on software. Pinball was in a clear decline, and um, Pat Lawler would say that people were screaming that they wanted machines that made more money. And European distros, of course, wanted something that was more gambling-like to help drive more revenue. So, for example, you could uh, get a score, you could get something, and you could get a beer for it, or you could trade in your tokens. We're getting kind of close to gambling here. Mm. Now, this machine was specifically designed for that, and by and large, uh, the game mystified people, and they just didn't get it. Safecracker has, of course, the play field, which is noticeably narrower, shorter, and it's not quite a standard pinball machine. The back box doors actually swim, swing open like a bank safe vault. It reveals the back glass that's behind that. The back glass image has lights and colors that combined into a more of an interactive board game than a traditional sort of DMD back glass. And you're supposed to act like a bank robber. Apparently the back box also has a token launcher, which is used to dispense 20 different tokens for Not certain apparently, achievements. it does. And it's cool. When it gives you a token, the way it shoots out, it literally rolls along the glass to you. It's pretty damn cool. Wow. I've never seen one of these in oh, person. Oh, you've never seen one of these in person? The no. play fields are exceedingly heavy to the point where they start to bow. So one of the mods or one of the things they would sell for it is like a safecracker play field reinforcement rails that you would put in. Because it literally was that heavy. It had so much stuff on it. Uh, also, a lot of operators were complaining that a lot of these big games, these wide bodies and other games, were taking up so much space that they would have like a section in their bar that was really small and they could just sort of cram something in there. So they needed something smaller to put in and there. This is smaller. This is kind of another sort of take on the street level games that they had experimented with at Gottlieb. Uh, as well as the other style of game that uh, Williams Bally had tried with uh, Harley. Well, Pat Lawler says that Safecracker was going to be Monopoly originally, which is funny because he would re- he would eventually do a Monopoly. So the big German distro, the one we can't remember the name of that has all the power, came in and said that it was stupid and an old person game and he wouldn't buy it. We did all the trouble to get the license and he killed it. Yeah, he thought Monopoly was a stupid theme, but Safecracker, an original theme, was a great idea. And judging by the sales numbers of less than 2,000 units, this did not go well. That did not. Now, why did? Why do you think the sales flopped for this machine? It's too different. Way too different. It's radically different. Another thing Pat Lawler would say was that at the same time, Attack from Mars happened. 
and the sales of Attack from Mars ate the sales of Safecracker. I actually don't think that's true. I think that this game is kind of crappy, and that's why it didn't sell. Now, I mean, Brian Eddy did an amazing job. I mean, come on. Attack from Mars is like all time. Pat Lawler would say that Williams was its own competition. Yeah, so I'm looking at the play field here, and the, the, the flippers are, they're like longer than two inches, but they're not three inches. So they're like, I think they're custom for just Safecracker. And then it has the thing flips thing on the side again. Yeah, it's Pat Lawler games. Got to have a weird side shot. But it's a new vision, a new standard, a new game. It gives you token. Not only did it give you tokens, it was a token gesture. It has a cool mode called Assault on the Vault. I mean, it's a well-made game. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a and it's a Williams game. So it's high, very professional, high quality, well-made game. I mean, like you know, software and callouts and all that stuff. But it just. It was too different for most people, and it just didn't sell. But the I, I do like the the token because there's a little slit in the right in the center, and when the token comes out, it will roll all along the glass and roll right to you. It's pretty damn cool. That's such a smart marketing gimmick. I guess that would be your toy. It also has a scoop. Of course, it's Pat Lawler. It needs to have a scoop. Now this brings us into something that's got a pretty serious mech. This is Circus Voltaire. It is a circus carnival theme from October of 1997. Ah. It is a Williams WPC 95, 2,704 units. This is designed by John Papaduke, commonly known as J-Pop, and Cameron Silver, art by Linda Deal, dots by Adam Ryan and Brian Morris, software and sound by Rob Berry and Dave Zabriskie, and software by Cameron Silver. This is the legendary John Papaduke game. Oh, yeah. This is the one you love, right? <laughs> I, I, I love this game. I don't love it for the gameplay. I don't necessarily love it for the pinball. I love it for everything but the pinball, which I think is a very common thing for this game. You want to talk mechs? We got a mech for you. This game is all about mechanical stuff. We have... The Ringmaster, which the Ringmaster toy, if you've never seen the Ringmaster toy, you don't even know. Well, actually, I think in a track mode, it's up to show you it's there. I think it'd be cooler if it didn't show you it was there. And this first time you saw is when you played. But you hit in the area. The Ringmaster will start the game below the play field. You hit an area where there's three targets. You hit it enough times. You spell wow. And then there's a magnet that will stop the ball. And the Ringmaster will actually lift up. And the magnet will be stuck on his hat. The ball. the ball. The ball. Sorry. I guess it's not really his hat, is it? Now that I'm looking at him. It's like the top yeah, now of his originally head. Originally, the ringmaster was... He looked a little different. He was skinnier, but they kept having balls get stuck. So they made him a little... His cheeks a little fatter. And I think if you go to IPDB and you were just there, it shows uh, the original ringmaster. Like that's... We're looking at it now. That's the production. If you scroll down, there's a, there it is. Sample version. See, he's... He's got like a skinnier chin. He looks he looks, okay, he looks yeah. meaner too. He looks more like a more evil ringmaster, but the balls kept getting stuck. He's he's green, he's got blue hair, he's got like ruffles, he's purple. This game is an artistic masterpiece and it has some amazingly stunning mechanical pieces and to it. And he he releases the ball, like pulse the magnet, it'll the, the ball fly off him and then you hit him. And if you hit him enough times, he rises up even more and he's got like a coily spring neck and, and you hit it in there and you defeat him. 
And it goes into a subway underneath. Yeah. That's just one mech. Probably the deepest mech as far as underneath the play field that I can think of. Yeah, very similar. A lot of people said that this is very similar to um, the uh, Avengers Infinity Quest spinning disc mech that rises up and you shoot under the subway in the premium LE version. But this is something else. It's a bash toy, it's a magnet, and it's a subway entrance. It is cool. Then they have the boom balloon, which is basically a pop-upper that rises up from the play field, which is not, that is not a new concept. That was in, I think, some EM in the 60s had that. Oh, there it, there is. it is. I, I, I was wrong. 50s, a disappearing pop-upper. It was also in a Williams game called Gusher. So this boom pop-umper. So there's like these weird, there's these these little rollover switches on the play field in various places. And when you roll over all of those, there's there's one in the in, in each in-lane, then there's a couple yeah, kind of up. Papa Duke loves his rollovers. Then it raises, then it raises up in this very precarious place. So there's two pop bumpers on the right side. And the third one is like hidden under the play field. And then it's like a balloon that rises up and then it causes some serious issues. The boom balloon. Then on the left, he just has like a kind of a plastic ball that just floats there and you can hit it like a ball pit ball. I got a kid's ball. Then pit. Even the locks are complicated. When you, when you, when you hit the left orbit, and you get a lot. Oh, I love it. It will put it in a saucer and then throws it to another saucer, the jugglers. So then it locks two balls up there. But wait, it has this ramp in the center. You shoot it up this ramp and there's a magnet on the top. There's like this little play field up there. And usually it'll just kind of go around and down what's called the neon tube. And it is neon, an actual neon light. But it, it a magnet will catch it and then it will roll it down into a physical ball lock, which is like the trapeze thing. And it is so awesome. And that's just the play field. Now the ringmaster will actually steal the ball with the magnet on his head off of that rant, off of that habit trail as well. I sort of started that. I love this game for everything, but the pinball, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is the in lanes and out lanes. They don't have sort of traditional in-lanes and out-lanes. They've got those pins, and you got to kind of like nudge it to get it down in there. The other thing is that the return uh, ramps are very, very far down the play field to the flippers that you got to be like on the ball when it comes down there. It's a very dangerous game on the lower play field, and that's mostly my own you know, hmm. skill level as opposed to the actual game itself. And we have Max in the back box. Oh, another yep, one. Another one. It's like a bell toy. Yeah, so in the back box, you have the cannon, which is just, it's got a picture of a cannon and a ball, and it fires it, and it goes up, and it hits a bell, which isn't really a bell. I, I don't even know what it actually is, but it makes a bell sound effect, the game. Wait a second. There's something missing from the back box. Yeah. The DMD, the dot matrix display, is not in the back box. He moved it down. What is that doing under he the glass? under the glass. It's under the glass in the back of the play field. Could you imagine going up to Gary Stern and being like, hey, I want to move that LCD screen off the back box? Yeah, you're kind of changing a very basic thing that now you're going to have to design differently. Yes. This game, when somebody has like a, a, a pretty great collection, this is always like the crown jewel piece. Isn't that right? Like if you've got a really nice Bally Williams collection, like your 
the, the, the one piece that you always put out so everybody can see each side of it. You don't put it in the row. You always put it in its own space. You want to make sure everybody sees it. Mm-hmm. And then everybody plays it and goes, I like theater magic better. <laughs> uh, nah, I, I would prefer Circus Voltaire. J-Pop says, on the ringmaster, we chose to use micro switches instead of optos. I think that was a fatal error. It was costing. We will keep the micro switches instead of adding seven more dollars for the opto set. That hurt operators. It was a, the, the game sort of struggled a little bit and it really has issues with stuck balls. It really has issues with sort of the ball going kind of in all directions where you don't necessarily want, like it'll go up a ramp and fall off the ramp, for example. Um, I know you, you get a lot of flipper hop if you're not really careful as well on the in lanes and out lanes. The game is not a very polished, finished work. So Papa Duke says, at some point you have to stop working. I think Circus had the most ball hangups out of any prototype with ramps. Everything wasn't linear and the ball would get stuck everywhere. So even the designer himself acknowledges the fact that this was not polished. And, and I said it, I think the game is a lot of sizzle and not a whole lot of steak. Because the code also struggles a little bit, right? I wouldn't say that. I think it had one of the better wizard modes. Multi-stage uh, wizard modes that would be used in, again, like, um, say, Superhero and Spider-Man would use it. You know, this stage, do this. This stage, do this. This stage, do this. It might have been one of the first ones that did that. I'm trying to think of anyone before that that did a multi-stage wizard mode. Someone shouting at the uh, radio right now. I want to talk about why I love this game a lot. And I think it comes down to the artistic direction and design of no, the game. No, it's the max. As opposed to the game it's itself. It's the max. Itself. You got you to keep with the, uh, you know, the show. I mean, the, I mean, the mechs are amazing. The problem is that it doesn't necessarily, it's, it has the mechs, it has the art, but I feel like it's lacking in the refinement of the design. Like it's, it's, it's just missing. It's missing something. It has some flow, but it's got some clunk. It's just, when I play it, I feel like, oh God, I just wish this was better. And I don't know why, because it's got all the things that I want it to have. Well, Adam says, John Papaduke, especially in Circus Voltaire, wanted to let his creative flow. He wanted to push the boundaries and the edge of what is known as pinball. To that point, it was all no fear and NBA fast break. It was very hard driving, sort of one-dimensional. He wanted to have more of an artistic flair to the whole package. So he really tried to have fun and push the dots into places they've never been before. Yeah, like, I can see that in the pin, right? I can see that there's something unique and different and artistic. That's what John Papaduke is really great with. But it seems to be missing sort of the very basic essence of pinball for some reason. It's so, it's so intangible and hard to describe. It's very weird. I think most people would agree with me that for some reason it's just missing something. I don't know what it's missing. If you know what Circus Voltaire is missing, send us an email, silverballchronicles at gmail.com. The other thing with J-Pop, and he gets this criticism as of late, and I'll work on a J-Pop episode for the future, is that this game really shines because of the mechanical engineering of those that worked on the game. And it really shines on the artistic package 
It's like John is an ideas guy and somebody else has to execute. Bally Williams was so magical and amazing. Boy, did they ever execute on this game. And the part that J-pop was most in charge of is the intangible piece that seems to be missing. The, the pinball shooting and shots and I don't know. Do you, under, do you know what I mean? Sure. All right, let's talk about, let's talk about gophers. No good gophers. This is a sports or golf theme from December of 1997. It is a Williams WPC 95 sells 2,711 units. This is a Pat Lawler game. It's, of course, artwork John Yossi, Adam Ryan on dots. And, of course, music and sound by uh, Vince Pantarelli. He did Judge Dredd, Dirty Harry, and Monster Bash software by uh, Louis Cosaris. I'm also very sorry for stealing Bruce Nightingale's Italian. Now, this is an interesting game because Pat Lawler came up with the idea of doing a backyard mayhem theme where gophers were destroying your lawn. And the idea was that there's a, a mechanical uh, wheel in the middle of the play field, which is like a weed whacker. You're chasing these animals. They're ruining your garden party kind of thing. Hmm. Pat Lawler says that sales told him that the Japanese don't have yards and they wouldn't understand a backyard mayhem theme. So what they told Pat was that they would only, they wouldn't be able to sell one container to Japan. They lobbied and lobbied and eventually Pat relented and he changed the theme to golf, which is very big in Japan. Interesting thing about making it a golf theme is Gottlieb already did teed off which was a golf theme with gophers. So for once, Scott Lieb was ahead of Williams. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool that way. It's, it, it, it's, um, the other thing is that, I mean, everybody loves Caddyshack, but this is not, it was not meant to be a Caddyshack ripoff, nor was it meant to be, uh, you know, a Gottlieb ripoff. It was just, hey, marketing, you know, nagged him enough that he just couldn't deal with it. Now, this is a very underrated Pat Lawler game. It's had a long burn. It was not popular at the time, but I think today it's much cooler than it was then. Would you agree? Eh, eh. I'm sure they sell, they sell for a lot. Again, it has more cool mechs. We have gophers that pop up that you can hit and they react, buzz and bud. And we have the slam ramp. Ooh, that sounds fancy. I love that name. And it's very appropriate because it would slam into the play field and damage it pretty much on every single no good gophers. Yeah, it's basically it's basically a ramp that hovers above the play field. And then it goes down and touches the play field. And then you shoot the ball into the ramp and it literally launches the ball across the play field to an upper play field area, as opposed to having a ramp yep. that smoothly goes up. It literally Airborne, launches the ball. You're trying to get in the hole for a hole in one. You're golfing. And I mean, it made people uncomfortable. And Pat Lawler loved it because that's what the ramp did. Now, of course, Pat would say people playing pinball at the time took a look at it and said, golf, golf sucks. I'm not playing that. But as time went on, it came around. So this came, uh, we, we were talking about Louie uh, the programmer. Now what, um, what Pat loved the most about Louie was his off center sense of humor and that he can really let loose with his humor. And that fit right in with Pat Lawler and his type of games where he likes to make them lighthearted and fun. But around this time, the downturn in pinball went even deeper and things started to go down slowly but now they started to really pick up speed. 
This is where everybody started moving over into William's new uh, slot machine division. So Pat Lawler would say that they saved gaming but killed pinball with these slots. At that point, they had become a real gaming company. Williams had stock analysts come in and they looked at the company and they wanted to value the stock as a gaming company, but they had this pinball on the side. So in that quote, Pat Lawler is basically saying that they had the sort of the corporate people come in and look at profits and they couldn't figure out what pinball was. It wasn't gambling like the gaming division. It wasn't video games like the video game division. It was like this weird relic of pinball and they very much looked down on it and they couldn't value it in the The stock. The weird part about no good golfers that I can never understand is it has a real back glass for, for no apparent reason instead of a trans light. And I would think that would have had to have costed more. Like, why would they use that? It's always weird. That that and Champion Pub had real backlashes. I don't know why. One of my favorite parts about this pinball machine are the gophers. The gophers, of course, being um, Buzz and Bud. And they hide kind of underneath the ramps on the right and left side. So the ramps will pop up like those Gottlieb Stargate ramps. And then these gophers come up underneath. Now, nowadays, the ramp would pop up and there'd be like a stand-up target or there would be a drop target if it was fancy. Well, I mean, then there's actually like a 3D plastic molded bash toy that these two gophers pop up. There's not just one, there's two. Like this this machine did not suffer from modern day costing issues. Uh, Walking Dead as Bicycle Girl. But then again, she, she yeah, doesn't Yeah, sort move. of the same thing. These move. These you can actually... Yeah, they bounce up and down and giggle and talk to each other and taunt you. Super cool. Yeah, then you hit them, and then you hit the hole where they are, and it locks a ball. Yeah, and then there's a ball locked behind them. Brilliant. It's a great It's a great little game. I love this. And it has a, like a spinning disc, which is like the shape of it's. It's meant to be a golf ball, but on it, it's sort of like a roulette wheel with a bunch of mystery awards, and it's grippy. So it's very it's much like whirlwind. like whirlwind, where it'll play chaos with your ball. It's got the Pat Lawler, standard, five uh, layout, in-lane, out-lane, uh, bottom, which is kind of off center a little bit. Wonderfully smooth ramps. Two spinners. Come on, game with two spinners. Mm-hmm. Captive ball. It's got the whole thing here. But the mechs on there, not particularly complicated, like a Doctor Who or a Twilight Zone, but numerous and effective. So much fun. Do you play this? Do you play this a lot in tournaments? Not a lot, but I, I, I have played a lot of No Good Gophers. Would you own a No Good Gophers? Uh, no. Why not? I don't like it that much. Oh, hey, look on the uh, flyer here. They have one of those uh, TNT plungers. Yes. You mean a detonator? And it says the pin everyone will go for. Get it? No, go I don't. Fur. Oh, I see. And the L is smashed out of golfers. Yes. No good golfer. No good golfers. <gasps> ah. oh. Very good. Very well done. You know that... From hackers to seasoned pros, this game scores big with the innovative Slam Ramp trademark. God, they trademark the everything. The spinning whirl wheel trademark. So from Whirlwind, I guess that makes sense. Why didn't they trademark Buzz and Bud? Because their names. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it also neat that Buzz and Bud basically look like Chip and Dale? There's the one with the red nose that's kind of weird and the one that's mm-hmm. not kind of yep. weird looking. It's a fun game. I'd own one of these, but they're so pricey yep. now. I don't understand why, like all, everything is just picked up steam. So this is when we get into the shutdown. 
for some reason, every time we go through some sort of chronological order of the nineties, we end up talking about the Williams shutdown. I like to depress everybody before we finish the podcast. So why did Williams close down the pinball division? Because slots makes way more money. Well, Well, here was the thing. When the analysts came in, they did all their nerding. They crunched all their numbers. They came up with a couple of options. Pat Lawler would say that they could sell the pinball division outright to somebody who would buy it, or they could write down $12 million. And and a lot of people will say that's also called writing off money. So the idea is if I can find somebody that will buy the division, which is what everybody I think would have preferred, right? All the pinheads in the world would have been like, oh, if only somebody else had purchased Williams, it would have been just the, the clouds would have parted and at least we would have kept pinball. But the analysts are looking at it saying if they could write off or write down $12 million, that means that they could count it as a loss and they could use that loss somewhere in their corporation to offset a gain, lowering, you know, taxation and a bunch of other things. That's, that's my nerdy financial advisor hat uh, being played there. Well, that would mean that they would have had to sell Williams Pinball to somebody for $12 million. And there is no way somebody would pay $12 million for a pinball company in 1999. Pat Lawler in 2010 said, today, no one would pay $12 million for a pinball company. No one would pay $2 million for a pinball company. So, I mean, the the post-2008 era when Pat Lawler did this interview with Topcast, there's no way anybody would pay $2 million at that time for a pinball company, let alone $12 million. So Pat Lawler's kind of right. I mean, if they could take that $12 million and write it down or write it off, that is the corporate decision. It's not the right decision. It's not the decision that any of us wanted. Pretty sad, actually. Well, you remember Rob from earlier who said some uh, great things about our podcast, but he said he was also at the 99 Expo and he took the factory tour. He says, I was working for Cleveland Coin, a distributor at the time. And when I heard that Williams closed that Monday, it felt like I just lost my best friend. I still stayed in the hobby, but kept my distance from the shows because without Williams, there was nothing left in my mind but the old stuff. I still wish Williams was a pinball company. And could you imagine the great pins they would have come out with? Gee whiz, eh? I, I thought that was such a really great uh, piece from the email that Rob sent into silverballchronicles@gmail.com. I had to include that at the end of our show. So what do you think, Ron? What do you think of the mechs that made us Williams Bally in the 90s? Mechs are awesome, especially when they're interactive and you can hit them. Hit, hitting them is always good. And you want it to change. The same mech that can do different things is 10 times better than a mech that you just bump into or a magnet that you catch a ball on. They help accentuate, accentuate. Yeah. Accentuate the pinball experience. Yeah. So what was your favorite Mac Ron of all the ones that we reviewed today? All the ones we reviewed, uh, the time expander. It just does the most things. Yep. Time expander is definitely my favorite, uh, of the ones that we did. Although in this episode, you also have to talk about the ringmaster and how awesome and versatile he is versatile. He's more versatile than just, a. Uh, just hitting him. He does, what, at least three different things. Catches the ball. And he's a character himself. He raises up. Then he raises up again. Then you hit into him. He catches balls Mm -hmm. off of a ramp, drops them off. I am the ringmaster. (laughs) Nowadays, the ringmaster would be a piece of PTEG plastic 
and a magnet in front. On of the it. pro, on the premium, it will be a molded piece. Stewie, you got this one. And as always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all those messages, and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave us a five-star review. That way, more people can find us. Want to support the podcast and need a new shirt? Of course you do. Swing on over to SilverballSwag.com and pick up a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt. I'm partial to the one that says wrong first. You know what's missing from those Bond movies? Sean Connery. Thank you. Thank you. Connery had the swagger, right? Like he had the sort of the brutish fighting and the swagger too. But it's, I, I don't know, man. I would I would put Daniel Craig, you know, I might put him above him. I really would. Uh, mm. I know that might be slightly uh, controversial, but. Mm. Created by Ron Sterling. Try again. Ron Sterling. Oh, you got you to gotta have that in the blooper reel. It's Rod Serling. Rod, Rod Serling. From upstate New York, I may add. Oh, you, you wrote it wrong. Ha! <laughs> Ron. Submitted for your approval. A man who can't spell. The program, also spelled correctly, despicks. Despicks. that. <laughs> there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is the Dennis Zone. A zone where spelling <laughs> it doesn't work. Ah, so here's the thing. In the original backlash, Ron Serling Ron was smoking. Serling. <laughs> I think you just just call this episode Ron Sterling. Before it was pencil, paper, paper. Before it was pencil, paper, 